The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There could never have been any doubt that Jesus would beat the devil. Of course he would. The devil is no match for Jesus. He's no match for God. Jesus is the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He's not like some half-man, half-God, like the heroes of Greek mythology. He's not like Hercules or Achilles who have weaknesses because they are only partially divine. Jesus is not weak by nature because he is fully God. When we see him in weakness, hungering in the wilderness or sleeping because he's tired or beaten and dying on the cross, it's because he has humbled himself. He has submitted himself to weakness and set aside the glory of his divinity. That's what makes it all the more remarkable. Of course, it's amazing if someone dies bravely. But how much more amazing is it when someone who does not have to die, who by nature would never die, when he dies bravely and willingly? That's otherworldly. There could never have been any doubt that Jesus would beat the devil. Of course he would. The devil is no match for Jesus. He's no match for God. He's no match for the love that God has for his children. That isn't to say, however, that Jesus didn't really suffer, that he didn't really experience temptation in the wilderness. In fact, that's part of the point. Jesus did suffer. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to hear Satan whispering in your ear. Like it said in our epistle lesson, we have a high priest who can sympathize, who, like you, has been tempted in every way. But he was without sin. And this is an important point. Jesus did not sin. 
It's an important point because lots of folks think that Jesus sympathizes with us when we sin. That when we sin, when we choose the evil over the good, he understands. It's easy to think that because that's often how we relate to one another. When someone else sins, we try to soften the guilt by saying things like, well, you're only human, or it's okay, nobody's perfect, or everybody does that. But the truth is that that kind of talk doesn't help anyone when it comes to sin. It might help if you do something silly, like lock your keys in your car. Then it's helpful to remember that you're human, just like everyone else. But it's not helpful when we deal with sin. For one thing, it lumps all of us sinners together in our misery, and it puts Jesus on the outside. It's something he can't relate to. He doesn't know what it's like to break God's law, to hide because of sin, to feel ashamed, to make excuses, to lie, to cover things up, to despise God's will, to blame someone else. He doesn't know what any of that is like. He's never done any of those things. He doesn't know what it's like, so he doesn't sympathize with our sin. He can't, and you wouldn't want him to. If Jesus was a sinner like you and me, he couldn't offer himself as a perfect sacrifice, blameless, spotless, and clean. If when you sin, all Jesus could do was to pat you on the head and say, hey, you did your very best, that's all I'm looking for, you'd be in a world of trouble, to say the least. That's not forgiveness. That's not atonement for sin. It's a lie about how bad things really are, about how bad you and I really are. It's the kind of thing the devil would say to convince you not to fear God, to think little of his wrath over sin, to lure you like he lured Eve, saying, did God really say you will surely die? You won't die. You surely won't. You wouldn't want Jesus to sympathize with your sin. You have a pastor and brothers and sisters who can sympathize plenty. We can sympathize with our sins, just like priests in the Old Testament who had to offer sacrifices for sin before they could sacrifice for the sins of others. We all know what it's like to be guilty, to need atonement, to need forgiveness. And so we can deal gently with one another, never excusing sin, never saying, that's okay, it happens to all of us, but always pointing one another to the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sympathy for one another when we sin is only helpful if it leads us to point one another to Christ, who knew no sin. It's good to have a friend who can sympathize with you when you're sick, who suffered from the same sickness, but how much better is it when that friend can, knows a doctor who can cure your disease? It's good to have a friend who can sympathize with you, who has suffered the same addiction or money problems or relationship problems. But how much better is it when your friend knows someone who can solve your problems? You want a pastor and brothers and sisters who can sympathize with your sin, but that's not what you want from Jesus. You want him to destroy it, to cast it as far from you as the east is from the west, to sink it in the bottom of the sea. And he can only do that if he himself is sinless. But again, although Jesus is sinless, that does not mean that he was not really tempted. He was. And so although he did not give in to the temptations, he can relate 
to your struggle against sin. He knows what it's like to push back against the devil. He knows what it's like to hear the lies and the enticements and the doubts and the mockery that the devil uses to lead us into sin. He's heard it all. That's what he experienced in the wilderness and throughout his life. And again, on the cross, Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as you are. He who has promised to help you knows just what help you need when you are tempted. We have a lot to learn from the temptation of Jesus. But there are three, there are three things, just three things in particular, I want to point out to you. First of all, I want you to see how it is that the devil tempts Jesus, because it is the very same way that he tempts you. Knowing your enemy is essential in any battle, and make no mistake, this life is a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the devil, who is trying with all his might to destroy God's creation and to lure you into hell. Second, I want you to see how Jesus fights back, because that is how you should fight as well. His weapon is the word of God, which Paul calls the sword of the spirit. A few weeks ago, we heard about how the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. When it is pointed at you, it's a terrible thing. It cuts to the heart. And God does that. He convicts us of our sin with his law so that we'll cry out to him for mercy. But it is not meant to remain a weapon against you. God's word is not meant to remain a weapon against you. It's meant to be a weapon for you to use against the devil in faith That's what God's word is for you. And finally, the third thing is this. I want you to see how the devil is overcome for you. How Jesus' victory over the devil becomes your victory. That is the most important part. But first, look at this question. How is it that the devil tempts Jesus? There are three temptations that you heard, but there's a theme running through each of them. In all three temptations, The devil appears as a friend, just as he appeared to Eve in the garden. St. Paul tells us that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. If you're not on the lookout for him, you'll never know that he's after you. You won't recognize temptations for what they are. You'll think that they're friendly suggestions from someone who really has your best interest in mind. Look at what he does for Jesus. You're hungry, he says. You've been fasting for 40 days. You must be miserable. You must be starving. Here, have some bread. You trust your heavenly Father? That's fantastic. That's wonderful. You should trust God. You could let him prove how much he loves you by throwing yourself off the temple. He won't let you get hurt. He's promised. And you're a good person, doing your Father's will. But you deserve better. You could have so much more. Power, riches, might, happiness, comfort. You can have it all. You can have the whole world. I'll help you get it. You deserve it. Notice how friendly the devil sounds. He hasn't come after Jesus like a monster with fangs and claws and horns and a pitchfork. He's come up alongside him as a friend, as someone who really cares, as someone who can see how much Jesus is suffering. Forty days past the point of feeling hunger, into terrible weakness, and on the way to starvation. The devil sounds compassionate. He really cares. 
and he sounds religious. He quotes the Bible. Listen to how much God loves you and how he'll take care of you. He has commanded his angels concerning you. They'll keep you from even stubbing your toe on a rock. You can do whatever you like, and Jesus and God will rescue you. And the devil sounds generous. I have so much to give you. I want to give it to you. All these things that you want, all these things that should be yours, you can have them. You cannot expect to know the devil by his appearances. You cannot expect to be able to see him as an enemy. He appears to be a friend. The only way that you can recognize the devil and his temptations is by using God's word. The hallmark of every temptation is that it sets aside God's word. And that's why God's word is the key to resisting temptation. In the first place, you need God's word to recognize temptation. The devil asks, did God really say? And so in order to resist the devil, you need to know what God has said. Jesus had been sent into the wilderness to fast and not to fill his belly. He'd been sent into the world to serve sinners and not himself. As much as Jesus may have needed to eat, what he needed even more was to hear and obey the word of God. God's word to him commanded humility and weakness, setting aside his power as the Son of God. If he had turned stones into bread, it would have been the end to his humiliation, then and there, without ever going to the cross. But the cross is why he was sent into the world. Besides, what is bread anyhow? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus would have gained a full stomach if he'd made bread from the stones, but he would have given up everything else. He would have given up you. He trusted his Father. He trusted God's word, and he resisted temptation. But you notice that in the second temptation, the devil quotes the Bible. This is where he gets really dangerous. He's clever. And the second temptation is craftier than the first. It's a wicked deception. The devil did what lots of folks like to do. He took the scripture out of context. He quoted the Psalms, especially this part. He said, he will command his angels concerning you, trying to convince Jesus to think that he could do whatever he wants and God will protect him. But he left off this little phrase. He quotes it out of context. Here's what it really says. He will command his angels concerning you to keep you in all your ways. God promises protection to those who walk in the ways of life, in God's ways. But the one who goes his own way, the one who jumps off the temple to see if God will save him, he puts himself outside of God's protection. He puts himself on the way that leads to death. But you can do this with the scriptures. You can take a verse here or there and get the Bible to say just about anything you want. It's a wicked lie, and it leads so many astray. And that's why knowing the whole scriptures is so important. It's why reading and studying the scriptures has to be a part of your life. Otherwise, what's meant to be your great defense and weapon against the devil is used by the devil against you. He is clever. And he knows the scriptures. But Jesus is more clever. And he knows the scriptures better. He knows that God is not on trial. God does not need to be put to the test. God has nothing to prove. It's mankind on trial. It's you and I who are put to the test. And the test is one of faith. Not will you throw yourself down and see if God rescues you, but will you hear 
and believe his word. That is true religion. The last temptation gets to the core of God's promises. Hasn't he promised blessings for his people, for his children? Why is he holding back such obvious blessings as prosperity, wealth, power, might, comfort, health, happiness? Aren't those real blessings? Don't you want them? If you'll take just a bit of glory from God and give it to the devil, he will be glad to supply you with the kingdoms of this world. You can have just about anything you want in this world if you are willing to devote yourself to something other than God. The gifts and rewards on offer in this temptation can seem glamorous and wonderful. They seem like blessings, but they are treasures that moth and rust destroy and that thieves break in and steal. They're not real treasures. Real treasures come only from God, and he alone is worthy of honor and worship. God's word tells us that the kingdoms of this world are passing away along with their treasures. The blessings of the kingdom of God include crosses in this life, suffering in this life, but glory in the life to come, in the world that will not pass away. To bow down and worship the devil would be the most obvious way for Jesus to break faith with his father. He's not going to do it. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. God's word was Jesus' defense against temptation, and it is your defense as well. It's how you can recognize temptation, even when it appears to come from a friend. And God's word is how you fight back against the devil. Jesus didn't try to get clever or outwit the devil. He did the most ordinary, boring thing possible. He quoted the Bible at him. He did his memory work. He recited what he had learned. And it's more than a defense. Remember, God's word is the sword of the spirit. It doesn't just deflect the devil's attacks, but it wounds him. It sends him running with his tail between his legs. Use God's word. Learn it and know it. So that when you are tempted, when you go into battle, you are prepared. We have a high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted just as we are. And he has shown us how to hold fast to our confession, how to take up God's word to beat back Satan instead of giving in to him as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But the most important part of this story, the third thing I want to draw your attention to, the most important part remains. Jesus didn't beat the devil just for the fun of it or to prove that he can, that he's sinless. That is important. It's important that he show himself to be what Adam and Eve and the people of Israel and you and I are not. Perfect, sinless, spotless, faithful. He shows that he's all of those things. But more importantly, don't miss this point, more importantly, he gives those things to you. Jesus beat back the devil in the wilderness, but the war was decided on the cross. On the cross where Jesus suffered and died, setting aside the glory of his divinity to serve sinners once and for all, to serve you once and for all, he destroyed the power of the devil. And he offered up his perfect life as a substitute for yours and mine. He took our place in the grave so that everything that belongs to him could be yours. Everything that belongs to him. He joined you to himself in holy baptism, washing you clean. His perfection, his sinlessness, his spotlessness, his faithfulness, his victory over temptation, it's all yours by faith. When you hear and believe God's word, 
when you hold fast to your confession, when you draw near to the throne of grace to eat and drink his body and blood with confidence, there is mercy poured out in abundance for you, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of salvation, and in this life, help to overcome temptation in your time of need. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.